Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California, Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services. And I'm joined by my co-host, second-year child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, Dr. Tosha Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi, Dr. Parks. And third-year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. Edgar Ortega. Hi, Edgar. Hey, Dr. Parks. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR School of Medicine. Well, thank you for joining us on today's show. We're going to talk about uh, hypnosis and uh, maybe more specifically dive into hypnotic suggestibility or uh, hypnotizability or susceptibility to that. They, you know, it's different terms in the literature. But before we get that, I always like to throw it out. Does anyone have any updates uh, that are maybe interesting or notable or things they've gone through or something that, you know, their clinical practice, perhaps. Uh, any- uh, I did want to update you guys that I've taken my board exams and I think it went well. I'm optimistic about it. Um, but it was quite the slog. It's an eight hour test with an additional hour oh, uh, for break time. <laughs> um, it was a long day. So are you the kind of person that when you have a good feeling after a test, it's usually right? Or is it random? It doesn't indicate anything, okay. honestly. Hmm. All right. Yeah. Uh, but okay. I was I was concerned going into it because, like, COVID, obviously, you know, it's in a closed space, um, very enclosed because I have to kind of soundproof it as much as possible. Um, and the circulation of air, that I was really worried about that. So, hmm. um that was kind of going on in the back of my mind as I was sitting there taking this test. Oh, it was an added level of stress. Yeah, and you wore a mask then. I did, yeah, for oh, wow. sure. And we wow. sanitize our hands going in and out, that sort of thing. Is it the they name? cut the, um, occup- the occupancy of the room in half to try to you know, minimize risk, but it was still stressful. Now, to the people that aren't familiar with physicians and what they go through, what is the board's? So the board exam, like any specialty, uh, has the option of doing the board exam. It it basically just like further legitimizes your expertise in the field. You don't have to be boarded to practice medicine. Um, There are plenty of psychiatrists out there who are not boarded. There are plenty of surgeons out there who are not boarded. Um, But it's another kind of certificate or further test of your uh, competency and, and you can, have to uh, renew it regularly um, so for us every 10 years we have to renew our board certification it can add to your salary also right yes yes so that's another reason well good for you and, uh, and good luck with getting the results and such so thank you uh, I have something you know there's something there's a survey of, of done by the physicians foundation about some of the stress during these times um, and I just want to kind of just, you know, just kind of share with some of these results and see what you all think about it. So uh, there was an 18% increase of medications and alcohol and illicit drugs due to COVID-19 by physicians. Uh, 50% of physicians says that they've experienced inappropriate anger, or anxiety, or tearfulness, you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, they have a, their a level of burnout has increased from 40 to 58 percent. It was interesting also that they said they one about 22 percent of physicians knew a physician that had committed suicide 
and 26% said that they knew a physician that was considering suicide or had considered suicide. So now does that seem high to you? That um, one out of four physicians knows another physician who killed themselves? Um, well, first off, let me start by congratulating Tosha for being done with boards. Oh, thanks, Edgar. <laughs> That's something I'm not looking forward for next year, but we have to do. Um, and it does seem like a high number, I mean, over 20% of someone who, a doctor who knows another doctor who has committed suicide. Um, but I think it, it is unfortunately true because of the demands of the field, the expectations, and many other reasons. I, and, and, and we were discussing this before, whether this is something that you heard in the news or heard by, you know, somebody else. But for me, I did, I didn't, I wasn't close to this person who committed suicide, but I met this resident doctor who at some point in the pipeline of programs in San Diego before I came to Riverside. And I found out later that uh, to my friend who was uh, really close to this doctor that he ended up committing suicide. And it was a very mm. devastating thing. And I just remember like, just kind of like in the now, not believing that this could happen, but I, I guess it is it is true. And I, I don't doubt that it is as high as 22% and more than what you were talking. Yeah, the, I mean, doctors are under a lot of stress, and they put a lot of pressure on themselves. I know, you know, a lot of doctors put a lot of pressure on themselves for not making mistakes, doing well. Uh, you know, there, there's something. You know, there's a lot of uh, what's called imposter phenomenon with doctors. Uh, you know, feeling that that they're uh, not measuring up, things like that. So maybe, yeah, there's a lot of stress and burnout. Well, okay. Well, okay, so let's turn to hypnosis and suggestibility. So, okay, so first of all, I, how much do you all know? Have you have practiced this? Have you, do you use this? Have you ever been hypnotized? Uh, I just want to kind of <laughs> ask that. You're just throwing that question out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I'll, I'll say this. I have never, like when they, I, I feel like I've, there's been a, an occasion where they say, is there, is there any volunteers for this thing? But I, I do not want to do that. I don't like going up on stage and doing stuff like that. But oh, I no, will say. Oh, no, me neither. No, okay. no. I, why? It, so why? You, no, uh, yeah. So you're not suggestible or open to do it, right? From what you I know hear. what? And it's fine. Uh, I'm just, that's a good point. That's, probably, there's a distinction there. Yeah. I mean, which is interesting about what kind of traits, what does that mean about me? I don't know. I've never, they have measures of that, and I've never taken that measure. Okay. Uh, but I had a, in a supervision situation, and I, I feel like I've mentioned this on the show, in a show before, uh, my supervisor was a certified hypnotherapist, mm. um, certified in hip, hypnosis for clinical reasons. And, so she would talk to me about it, and then she just started with the induction. So hypnosis involves two basic components. There's an induction phase, and then there's a suggestion phase. So you first induce this kind of um, state, and then uh, you provide a suggestion, you know, relax or whatever, or you can't move your arm, or your arm is light, or something like that. So she did induce an induction during supervision. She didn't really ask me. She didn't really say, let's try this. Wait, she did it to you? Yeah, she just started doing it and started Oh, just, my gosh. Yeah. I thought it was supposed to be consent. <laughs> it's all voluntary. Yes. Um, I, was it? You 
Well, it, she never asked me. Oh, that doesn't sound yeah, voluntary. Yeah, it doesn't sound, <laughs> it doesn't sound voluntary. Right. And so, and then she asked me. Now, I will say that I did not go along with it, but I did act like I went along with it. And okay. so, you can no, make your really? you can make your judgments <laughs> you about what it. that means about me. But, I mean, that's what they say about uh, consent. There being a power dynamic, wanting to. I mean, right. we don't have to go into that, but. <laughs> yeah, no. I so I mean, that's my that's all my experience. So, what, how about you? You two. Have you ever had an experience with I, hypnosis? I had, and that, that might, like you were saying, that may say a lot about my personality. How am I susceptible to these things? But, and, and I never really even thought about this until I was doing my research in preparation for this program. But there's two types, or, or maybe more, but uh, the, it's important to differentiate the clinical aspect, which is what you're doing when you go with a certified therapist or clinician or someone who has training on this and do it, you know from a therapeutic perspective. But the one I did, it was more for the entertainment kind of part when you have a, a show and then this hypnotist, you know, gathers you know, people and then kind of like ask everybody to follow the steps for hypnosis. You know, I don't even remember what it was. And then whoever got, I guess, hypnotized then can friends or people volunteer them to pass to this stage and then do, you know, uh, funny things. So. Uh, it probably happened at least once wait, or twice. Wait. So to clarify, Edgar, you're saying that this hypnotist attempted to hypnotize the whole room and then called from that room whoever was successfully hypnotized right? to bring them on stage? That right. is a oh brilliant technique of identifying <laughs> suggestible people. I, I guess you're right. And they, they identified me. But it, yeah, it was like a whole you know, movie theater. I'm not sure how many people got hypnotized because I did get hypnotized, but I was open to try it and see what it is. If I felt wait, where something, was this? Did you already say where it was? Oh, no. This was, I don't know, when I was a teenager, early 20s in Mexico. There was this famous... In Mexico? Yeah, there was this famous hypnotist that wore around on tour. And, and me and my friends wanted... Well, my friends wanted to go, so I tagged along. And then I, I was open to try and see if it did something for me. And it did. Yeah. And I... Oh, what did it do? So you were open to it. it you right. were definitely open to it. Right. And see what it is, if it's fake or not. And yeah. And I think that's what a lot of people we're going to talk about Uh brings it up that you have to have that openness about trying it and and it is there, there's some I guess misunderstanding like actually hypnosis from what I read and what happened to me you're not really asleep you're in a state of like hyper awareness when right. yeah you're more susceptible to things and guidance and you do remember things so it's been a while so I do remember that uh I you know I think the guy asked us to dance and sing and and say things like that and I remember even other people from I don't know they maybe put in the states like 15 people and they ask at times to do certain things, have an argument with someone like if you knew it, dance with the other person, things like that. And you will hear, I'm not sure if some of these were people who were just acting out because you you will hear like fun, very funny things. Like, I don't know. It was like, <laughs> but it was meant to be, you know, like an entertaining show. So for me, I think, I guess it did work because uh, I, I was open to it. But I don't know all the people because I, you know, my eyes were closed. I guess somehow when that happened. So what do you remember from it? Like, what did you do? Like, I, yeah, what did you? What did they have you do? <laughs> I think I from what I remember, just some dancing with random people on the stage. Okay. <laughs> uh, so kind of like I, now is that something you would never do just on your own? Would I, that help you do that? I like dancing, but I don't know if I would dance in front of like three hundred people. Okay. You know? So kind of released your inhibitions about doing that. Is that right? Fair yeah. to say. And I do remember that like my eyes were kind of closed, so I don't know how that happened. Uh, oh. Mm. Wow. 
Yeah. It sounds like a lot of fun, actually, to, to watch so, it. Oh, not, yeah, to watch it, yeah. So basically, you don't really remember doing these things, Edgar. No, I do remember doing the, these things. I don't know how they look from the outside. Oh, interesting. Okay. But I don't remember everything that happened because it's been like over 10 plus years. Sure, sure. Oh, my gosh, that's so exciting. Do you have a video of it? I don't know. I can try to ask my friends. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> definitely. They probably for sure. I don't, I don't know if I want to sure. put that in the internet, you know, nowadays. No. <laughs> Just for well, us, Edgar. I have an interest in it because I, you know, I, I, I can I harness this whatever's going on with folks, uh, you know, not because I want to be a certified hypnotherapist or anything, but uh, you know, is is there some sort of process? Because I know it's all voluntary. I do know it's all voluntary. It's it not is. something that you're right. It's not a sleep state or anything. It's something that you you know suggest and um, people willingly do it. In fact, there's a you know there's thinking. Uh, with hypnotists that says that you know basically all hypnosis is se- it really self hypnosis because it's so voluntary. Right. But where did this get this? Uh, you 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 indicated before the show that you might know a little bit of history. Do you want to just right. briefly yeah, say like where where did this come from? Okay. So just to clarify everything, hypnosis and suggestibility is just a trait when uh, you know that you are going to be more. It's like a mental state where you are hyper focus concentrated your peripheral awareness meaning your arms and everything else is kind of lower and right. and your suggestibility increases kind of relaxes the mind and but you're awake and recall like i said and there's many techniques and different things uh always doing it and the history dates back from like the 17th century by this doctor franz mesmer in austria but uh i think when and it may be before but the some of the early traces on what it took off was in the 17th century. The the reason why it seems like it didn't move too quick is because this doctor had like this mystical views that then shifted to a more scientific approach. I think if he even called it like animal magnetism, which I'm not sure what he meant by that. Uh, and then oh. and then later on in the 19th century, uh, also John Martin Charcot, who was big into this categorizing women in hysteria kind of brought it back in that too and then from there to copying kind of uh, Sigmund Freud kind of used it to develop the psychoanalysis and then there, there were many theories and stuff like that but one of the most well known is Hilgard's neo-dissociation theory of hypnosis when there's two extremes of mental activity one, and just describes what it is I guess one of them is the consciousness or the state of consciousness would you respond to what the hypnotist is suggesting and the other one is the stream of processes that pay attention to the information outside of the of your hypnosis i guess and that's it, it's been developing since then i'm not sure i think tosha i believe you have a little more on psychoanalysis because i don't know much on that yeah yeah so um one of the things that I had read about Freud's involvement with hypnosis was that he did initially dabble in hypnosis, um, but what he saw in using it for treating various psychiatric disorders was that it it did help, but he found that when the patients were able to um, kind of come to the realization of their insights on their own, that it was more effective. So in hypnosis, you know, they might be um, 
stream of consciousness consciousness talking about what's going on or whatever uh, you can have them recall a memory and then afterwards when they come out of that state then you're explaining to them like this is what you talked about and this is the insight you had that is very different from them actually in psychoanalytic therapy when they're conscious fully conscious they're doing this stream of consciousness um kind of like uh verbal vomit right Mm -hmm. and then they come to the insight on their own fully conscious not in a hypnotized state um he found that that was more effective but it was kind of the same line of thought that perhaps this stream of consciousness talking would do a similar thing as kind of reducing any sort of inhibitions going on as hypnosis it was kind it was analogous i guess Mm -hmm. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR. We're talking about hypnosis, uh, altered states of consciousness, uh, hypnotizability or suggestibility, and um, you know what impact this could have on clinical practice and just and just for your daily lives. Because you know, there's also self-hypnosis techniques. And you know, when I was looking at the literature, um, I did find some some different kinds of self-hypnosis techniques, but. I, you know, it was varying levels of effectiveness because I also f- uh, felt like, uh, you know, it, could, it would help with things like, um, you know, relaxation, definitely. But it, di- it was not very effective or had spotty research on things like pain, like, uh, you know, self-hypnosis for, to reduce pain and things like there was, there was a few things about labor pain and things like that. It didn't really do much. Mm-hmm. So there's limited effectiveness. But, uh, you know, as far as like clinical practice, First of all, do you feel like you personally would go to a hypnotist to reduce, uh, to either become more relaxed, reduce a habit, like a habit like smoking, or um, you know, if you if you wanted to lose weight or something, uh, would you recommend this to somebody? Is this a, is this a technique after doing some of this research on hypnosis? Is this a technique that you would use? Okay, personally, um, I think I mentioned to you guys that my family. Uh, was not that open to the idea of psychiatry as a field of medicine um and so hypnosis like forget it like (laughs) i i personally would not try hypnosis but i i do think that it can help some people would i recommend it as like a primary treatment option no um i'd probably recommend it if they've tried other things first and um and you know, weren't having success. But I will say I was very surprised to see that the APA, the Psychiatric APA, um, American Psychiatric Association, sorry, because there's an American Psychological Association, the APA in 2009 came out with a position statement um, and they reported that there are randomized clinical trials showing that hypnosis has been effective in, like you said, pain but also anxiety, stress, cancer, surgery, phobias, psychosomatic disorders, nausea and vomiting, habit control problems like smoking or weight control. So, oh, and also dissociative and PTSD, dissociative and post-traumatic stress disorders. So I was really surprised to see that. Um, I wasn't expecting to see that there's actually been randomized clinical trials because that's, that's uh, those are some pretty legitimate studies then yeah i think it's important to know like who is more susceptible and or or suggestible and who's not uh 
Now they they've developed different kinds of measures for this. You know, there's there's this a Harvard scale, and there's also one by Stanford. Um, and you know, the some some of the principles that are involved here is that uh, you're you have this induction, and you're told to do different things like uh, you know you know your your arm is light or things like that, or um, you you can't move your arm, you can't release your grasp or something like that. And then yeah. then you're told now release it, and then there's some sort of timing. Of how how long it takes you to release it, or there's some sort of interview afterward that says that. So you were told that um, to kind of your head was light, and you were told to move your head or you lift up your head. How how many inches did you lift your head? Did you lift significantly or not? And then depending on these kind of answers to these questions, it could tell you how suggestible people you know you are. And I think that that kind of knowledge is good to then tailor whether or not this is a good intervention sure, for you. Yeah. And also, you know, if I can add one more thing. There was an association between if you're suggestible just to hypnosis from a hypnotherapist, then uh, for another person, you know, doing this induction and just your own self-hypnosis. So I feel like it, you possibly could do this, you know, if you were informed that you were highly suggestible, then you could probably just conduct your own self-hypnosis if you were really worried about it. Okay. And and do things like habit change mm-hmm. again, you're, like Edgar was saying, it has a way of uh, increasing or enhancing your in, your attention, your attention processes. Right, and uh, just to kind of put that as well in my perspective, I do agree that it can be used as a supplement or addition to something else. In fact, some of the studies, and I'm not sure if this is what Toshi was saying, with that combining CBT with hypnosis, like have like better results with the losing weight and keeping weight you know down versus if it was, if it was only like cdt uh in a i think this study that they did over like an 18 one critical uh um part of the harvard medical school uh, and 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 like i can see that as an addition for some things how it can make a difference in a similar way to what you would do with uh doing other things of self-care like meditation maybe etc um i don't want to compare the two of them but i'm just trying to kind of like in relationship to something else. Um, I do think that besides what you said, Dr. Paris, like we talked about um, the numbers that I found um, about who's more likely to be hypnotized, which is not like, I found like up to, I think 79% have moderately susceptible, are moderately susceptible to be hypnotized. Five to 10% are-, are well, how, much, how much percent are moderately susceptible? 79%, which is the majority of us. The, wow. Then five to ten percent are really, really susceptible, and twenty-five percent are not at all. They might be a skeptical and willing, which is what Dr. Park might feel in. <laughs> and some of these, <laughs> some of these uh, uh, numbers came from Dr. David Spiegel at Stanford, and he even do went as far as to do MRI studies and other imaging to try to find out how to objectively, I guess, differentiate this. And I, I think. Some of the findings in terms of that as well is like there's some sort of co-activation in some parts of the executive control centers, which is the prefrontal cortex in your brain, um, and and that seems to correlate with people who are also more susceptible. If we look at it from like the I guess biological perspective, and then the last thing I want to mention is that this same physician told I think once it was probably the LA Times or something else that. Um, so people who are most susceptible is also the ones who tend to lose track of time and get lost in books and movies, which I think that happens to me. Oh, mm. yeah. I saw that too, right? mental absorption. That, yeah. Right. yeah. And then th- this phrase kind of resonates with me too, is people who can really immerse themselves in thinking about things without having their attention interrupted by pesky reminders of reality. 
Um, I mean, that's a little. <laughs> wow, that is me. I right? I do tend to get really absorbed mm-hmm. in TV, like whatever's on. Right. Um, I think wow. you should Maybe practice self hypnosis. Yes. Yeah, you might be able yeah. to do it, Tosha. I don't know. I'm really that. surprised. I'm really surprised by the the percentage of those moderately susceptible. That's very uh, high. That's that's high to me. I was not expecting that. If you had a habit you wanted to reduce, what would it be though? Like what what would you want to, or increase? Would it be like exercise or something, or you know what would it be? Well, I, 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 exercise would be a good one. I think a lot of people would pick exercise. Yeah, because right. yeah. I feel I like almost everyone does wants that. I think everyone would choose exercise or something to do with weight or like healthy habits. Yes. Yeah. Some sort of healthy habit thing. I, you know, I kind of want to go back to Edgar, uh, something you said. Yeah. There's not many personality variables, but uh, I did see that uh, that creativity uh, seemed to be it, uh, associated with it. And also just empathy and resp- uh, was also a part of being able to being susceptible to uh, mm. hypnotizable. And it kind of makes sense. Like if you're very empathic and you, you get into uh, what other people are saying or the emotions, what other people are saying, it seems like, yeah, that seems like you would be open to induction and suggestions. You know, similarly, I wonder what qualities makes a good hypnotherapist. That's a good point. A really mesmerizing, <laughs> charismatic right? one. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be charming. Yeah. No, I you know, so that, you know, that really does bring up this thought is like, do you feel like cult leaders and people that are susceptible to following cults do you think that there could be a link between suggestibility and just tendency to follow cult leaders is that possible i think so i think it's an excellent question i i don't i haven't heard i haven't done any reading in that area so i can't really speak to any evidence out there but that might be something for a future show makes sense to me yeah i haven't read as well but i do believe that People who get into these ideas of forming their own cults and having people manipulate people and things like that, they're probably targeting, I'm not sure if consciously targeting people who are more susceptible, like they know exactly, oh, I'm going to look for someone who gets lost in the movies or who is more susceptible to things, etc. But I think that can be part of why they are able to manipulate other people into do whatever they tell them to do basically over time. Yeah, I mean, and if I'm, getting into a hypnotic state is this highly suggestible state, sure. I mean, I'm not saying yeah. using hypnosis, but people who are so susceptible to right. these things are my... And so not everybody, but they can try to find an in a way in, in, into this, the people who are more like susceptible. Basically. Yeah, I've actually heard of this before. I actually, I remember an interview with someone that was in a cult that um, said that there's basically different meditative practices oh, yeah. that left uh, him... Uh, just more open to the messages and the uh, the guidance of, of whatever the cult said. So, and that that took a long time for him to kind of uh, kind of uh, practice out mm. of that. You mean you're making this connection because like med- a meditative state is somewhat similar to the way this hypnotic state is described. That's a, yeah, that's what he kind of increased yes, attention, increased arousal, but then a decrease in your peripheral awareness. That's that's what he implied in this. I wish I was remembering. He wrote a book on it, uh, but um, yeah, he was, he was implying that 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 just being in hours of meditation kind of left him in this more susceptible state. Mm-hmm. And I think that yeah, that, that's that I want to bring this up before the end of the program, like into maybe the ethics of when can things be harmful, right? Because 
Because, yeah, if, if it seems like evidence points that, like, Gnosis can be beneficial for the things that Toshi was saying and things, things from the uh, American Psychiatry Association perspective, but I think when, when are things taken too far, when it's, it's like uh, hypnosis or even meditation and other things too far? Because, like, for me, any extremes will be almost detrimental in many ways. And and I don't know if we have a number in terms of like, what's the hours of meditation or something, but but I think one of the ethics I run into is like, can hypnotists control people's mind? And the answer I found is like, use because you're providing consent, you still like have free will, but then you're still more open to suggestion, which it's maybe unlikely to act back against what you moral is, but then it's kind of like this dilemma of can it be, you know, used to, for manipulation, yeah. I guess. Yeah, no, yeah, went in the wrong hands or something like that. I did see a study that uh, talked about, because it's, it's really hot in cognitive science now, You mm-hmm. and, and, th- and studying things like dissociation and cognitive problems and um, con- what's called conversion disorder, like, you you know, you can't feel your hands or you, you're blind for no apparent reason, things like that. But uh, um, they did seem that uh, when they induced cognitive states and they made these suggestions afterward, when they released the person from the suggestion and said, okay, so now you're coming out of the state, you are now feeling fine, your hand feels fine, they found no impact. So this is a, a, a really good way to study these mechanisms. And, you know, and, and, and during the time that, you know, frequently these, these folks are, you know, hooked up to, you know, EEGs and, you know, they do fMRIs and stuff like that to, to notice what, what's going on in the brain during these states. So I, there was no, the bottom line, all that talk that I just said, the bottom line, there were no lingering negative consequences to inducing these states and then studying them, which is a I, good... I mean, that's a good point to make, yeah. It won't be harmful. So, Edgar, you're okay, okay. that you went to this uh, thing and you yes. danced with these strangers <laughs> and people recorded it and are probably posting it on the internet right now. It is, no, I, I, you're fine. I, I think because it was before the, the times of faith within Instagram, I'm safe. But, <laughs> okay, <good. laughs> but I don't know if I'll do it again. Well, well I, I hope it's recorded, though. All right. Yeah, what are you going to say? No, I'm just going to say that, like, if you put your hands on someone who's being trained, because apparently training for this, it might take 40 hours of training, 20 hours of individual practice, and two years of practice, then most likely than not, you're going to yes. have good outcomes. Yeah. You're right. You're right. No, good point. There's, there's, there's regulations on this stuff. So look for a certified person. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today, we discussed hypnotizability or suggestibility. Thank you to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Yamaguchi and Dr. Edgar Ortega. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucr@gmail.com. That's getpsychedonkucr@gmail.com. You can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. This episode was recorded in each of our respective homes and then mixed by our producer at KUCR, Elliot Fong. So special thanks go out to him. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. Psyched.